right. Good morning, St. Paul's. Thank you for joining us on live stream today. So this is our 24th week now in the book of Revelation, and we are nearing the end. We're just uh, about three chapters away from the, the finish line. Now, all of Revelation is difficult to interpret. If you have been following this series, you know that. But today we come to the passage that is probably the most difficult to interpret of all. This is the passage that's about something called the millennium. If you have ever heard somebody describe themselves as post-millennial or pre-millennial or amillennial, it has to do with how they interpret this passage. And if you've never heard anyone describe themselves that way, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, I'm going to do my best to explain this in a way that hopefully is understandable and um, I hope interesting. And I want to begin with a little disclaimer. Most of the sermons at St. Paul's are not like the one I'm about to give. If this is your first time at St. Paul's, um, don't think that this is representative of what all the messages are like. This is going to feel a little bit more like being in a seminary classroom uh, than being in a church service. And because of that, I actually considered just skipping over this passage entirely. But the reality is, this is a passage that has caused a lot of division throughout church history, and it still causes division today. And I think it's important for us to recognize that it does not need to cause division. But the only way that we can really realize that and understand why is by looking at it. So I'm hoping that as I talk about the different views on this passage and the history um, of what has been thought and why, that it will be interesting to you, that it will be enlightening, and that hopefully it will promote greater unity uh, in the church. So uh, before we get into it, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance to look at your word together, uh, to study it. Father, I pray that you would uh, cultivate interest in it for us. Um, I pray, Lord, uh, that we would just come to this text eager to receive whatever it is that you want to show us. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you're following along at home, this is Revelation 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. 
When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. All right, quick summary of what we just read. The devil is bound for a thousand years. Um, during that a thousand years, he is not able to deceive the nations. People who have died for their faith come to life during this time period and reign with Christ for those a thousand years. And when the a thousand years are over, the devil is no longer bound. Uh, once he's released, he tries to attack God's people, but it doesn't work. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes them, and then the, the devil is uh, finally forever punished, uh, put away uh, from the rest of creation. Now, how we understand all of this is dependent on what we think the millennium is, that a thousand years, and when in history we think it's happening. And throughout the course of church history, there have been three main views on the millennium and when it occurs. I already mentioned what they're called, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, and amillennialism. And they, they're big words, but they're actually really simple to, to understand. Post-millennialism is the idea that Christ will return after a millennium where followers of Christ are reigning on earth. Premillennialism uh, is the view that Christ will return uh, before a millennium where followers of Christ will reign on earth, and then that millennium will be followed by what we would call the final state of creation. And then amillennialism is the view that this millennium is a symbol for the period of time between Christ's first and second comings. So we're actually in the millennium right now, according to this View. Now, you might notice that on the slide, I've put that word millennium in quotes in all three of the views. And the reason I've done that is because there are people in all three of those schools of interpretation who don't think that the millennium is a literal thousand-year period. Um, there are people who are pre-millennial and post-millennial who do think it will literally be a thousand years. Um, but there are people who think it just represents a long period of time, a significant period of time. And part of the reason for that is because in Revelation, numbers typically have a symbolic significance rather than a literal significance. Um, obviously, if you're an amillennial uh, person, you think that it's a symbolic number because we're more than a thousand years since Christ, uh, Christ's uh, ministry. So um, that goes without saying. But people in all three of those camps uh, some of them don't think that that number is meant to be taken literally, but that it means a long time. So, of those three, what's the right view? What is the correct one? Well, the reality is well-meaning, sincere followers of Christ who take the Bible really seriously have disagreed on what the best answer is. And I think that this is one of those times where looking at church history really helps to put things in perspective. So here's a brief overview of the history 
of this, uh, this view, these views in the church. So very early on, we're, we're talking like first generations after the apostles, the records we have indicate that most people were premillennial. Uh, they believed that Christ would return and then there would be this special period of time where Christ's followers would be reigning on earth, the millennium. And uh, some of the names that you might uh, have heard of that, that thought this uh, were Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and Papias. But there was a shift fairly early on in the church where by the 300s, uh, amillennialism started to become popular. In fact, there was a council, a church council in Ephesus in 431. And at that council, they formally condemned premillennialism. And they said that amillennialism is the, the appropriate view. And some figures in church history who have been amillennialists are St. Augustine, John Calvin, and uh, Martin Luther. So some pretty heavy hitters there. But in the 1800s, postmillennialism was actually the most popular view in America among American evangelicals. Uh, and they believe that by preaching the gospel and living the way that Jesus called us to live, that eventually we would usher in, the church would usher in this special age of peace and prosperity, and then Jesus would return. And this interpretation was held by people like Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney. But by the early 1900s, premillennialism became in vogue in America. Um, and one theory for why there was this shift from postmillennialism to premillennialism is in the 20th century you had the First World War, the Second World War, and the church kind of, those, those, those experiences made it hard for them to believe that the church could actually usher in an age of peace and prosperity, right? Because those were some really awful events in history. So... Um, Views shifted. And premillennialism is actually probably, at least in, among American evangelicals, the most popular view today. Chances are, uh, if you've grown up in the church in America, you, you've kind of just assumed premillennialism. Uh, and some other names you might recognize associated with this interpretation are John Nelson Darby and Charles Ryrie. So, whatever interpretation we prefer, we really should not see it as essential to our faith. I think that should go without saying. Because if we do, we're automatically excluding some people in church history from true Christianity who most people respect, right? And it's, it seems pretty judgmental to, to write them off. If you think that scripture clearly teaches one of these three views, I don't think you've done your homework. I really don't. Because there are great arguments for all three, and there are great arguments against all three. When I prepare one of these messages, I try to read from about eight to ten different sources uh, on Revelation. And what I found uh, studying this is that all the sources that I've been looking at pretty much said the same thing. Which is, here's the view that we prefer, but the reality is we can't know for sure. All I think I looked at 10 this week. All 10 of them had basically that same approach. And they preferred different ones, but they all were unanimous 
that there are good arguments for all three. I remember I was watching a YouTube video of one seminary professor who I thought did a really uh, good job explaining his views, and he was making the case for premillennialism. And I was listening to him, and I was just thinking, gosh, this is, this is so compelling. I mean, I don't know how anyone couldn't be a premillennialist. I think I need to be a premillennialist. And then about halfway through the video, he stops and he goes, so that's the case for premillennialism, but I'm actually an amillennialist. <laughs> and then he, he made the case for amillennialism, which was just as or more compelling than the premillennial view. So we have got to be humble about this issue. We've got to be. It's very silly to be dogmatic about it. But the reality is there are some people who are dogmatic about it. Uh, there are denominations that require their pastors to hold one of these three views. There are seminaries that require their, pro their professors to hold one of these three views. And there are even some churches that require their members to hold one of these three views. Usually the schools that require one of the views uh, are requiring premillennialism, which I think is ironic because most of those same schools would probably really um, appreciate Martin Luther, John Calvin, and St. Augustine, who were amillennial. So I guess Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Augustine wouldn't be able to teach at their seminaries, which is a little strange. Um, so this is not an issue that should be dividing us as Christians. Now you might ask, okay, well, why does it matter at all? Well, you can imagine how your view here could work itself out practically in your life. For example, if you are post-millennial, that means you believe the world is going to get better before Christ returns. For some of you, I say that right now, and you're thinking, what? You know, <laughs> you've probably grown up in a, an environment where you've just kind of imbibed the idea that the world is just going to get worse and worse before Christ returns. But there's a whole school of interpretation in church history that actually believe the opposite, that, that believe that the world was going to get better and better. And because of that, post-millennialists historically have been a bit more motivated to work to make the world a better place. Uh, post-millennialists, many of them were behind the movement to abolish slavery. Uh, post-millennialists uh, are more likely to you know, care about uh, justice and... Um, or I shouldn't say they're more likely, but historically they have had connections to caring about just making the world a better place. Environmental stewardship, justice, um, abolishing slavery, that sort of thing. There's, there's a passion to do that, and there's a feeling that if we do these things, we're actually helping to usher in the return of Christ. Okay? Now, premillennialists, because they expect the world is on this downward um, you know, trend to chaos and disorder and that it's all going to burn, you know, they are very motivated to share the gospel, to evangelize, to invite people into relationship with Jesus, and they do that with it. Historically, they've done that with a sense of urgency. So you can see how what you believe about this can shape your actions in the world, right? And what I would say is that we should be motivated to make the world a better place, to be the salt of the earth, like the post-millennialists, and we should also be motivated to invite people into a relationship with Jesus Christ with a sense of urgency, like the premillennialists, and take the best from both of them. And maybe not being sure how this is all going to work out can actually help motivate you to draw on the best of both the postmillennialists and the premillennialists 
while avoiding their mistakes, right? So maybe the ambiguity is actually a good thing, not being sure. Now, if you force me to choose, gun to my head, you said, Ryan, you have to pick which of these three you think is, is the, the right one. The one I lean toward is the amillennial view, the third one. And that is the view that this vision is a symbolic representation of the time period between Christ's first and second comings. Now, why do I lean in that direction? Okay, I'll give a few foundational reasons. Why, why would anyone be an amillennialist? Well, first, it's the most symbolic view out of the three. And if you know what I've been saying about Revelation the whole time, it's that it is a highly symbolic book. So it seems in keeping with the spirit of the book uh, for the millennium also to have some sort of symbolic significance rather than literal um, significance. Two, amillennialism seems to me like the interpretation that would be the most relevant for the first readers of the book. Because... If amillennialism is true, it's not just describing something in the far and distant future, thousands of years away, but it's describing something about their present reality. And I think that as much as we can, it's important to try to understand Revelation as being significant to the first century readers. Okay, so that's another foundational reason. Uh, three, because amillennialism has been the most popular view throughout church history. Now, church... Truth is not a popularity contest, okay? It's important to recognize that. That doesn't mean for sure that it's correct. But it is a point in its favor. It's something that we have to consider, that it is the most popular view throughout the history of the church. Four, because this idea of the millennium doesn't really show up anywhere else in Scripture. Some people say they see it, but it's not explicitly talked about. And you would think that if there's going to be this special, unique period of history that's a thousand years long, that somewhere else in the Bible would talk about it other than these five verses in Revelation. Um, and number five, and this is kind of a very subjective opinion, this is my opinion, but premillennialism seems like a strange story to me. Now, far be it from me to tell God how to, do, how to run history. But the premillennial view, of course, is that Jesus returns, the devil is bound, there's this long thousand-year period, maybe, maybe shorter, maybe longer, of the saints reigning on earth, then the devil is destroyed, then we get the final state. It's just, it just seems weird. It seems like a weird story. We already had this long interlude between Christ's first and second comings. Why are we then going to have another long interlude between Christ's second coming and the final state, the perfected creation? It's possible, but it just seems like a strange story. So those are some foundational reasons why I lean towards amillennialism. But if amillennialism is true, how are we supposed to understand this passage? What does it mean? I mean, there are some things about our present experience that don't seem to match with what Revelation 20 describes. Uh, for one, it doesn't really feel like Satan is bound right now, does it? I mean, it seems like Satan's doing his thing these days, deceiving people, for sure, right? Uh, in fact, earlier on in this series... Um, I talked about how Satan is wielding a lot of influence in the world, and I talked about how 
I see the tribulation period in Revelation as the period of time between Christ's first and second comings. So if you're paying close attention, you might be saying right now, Ryan, you've really contradicted yourself. On the one hand, you're saying the period of time between Christ's first and second comings is the tribulation, this time where the devil is wrecking havoc on earth. And then you're also saying that that same period of time is this millennial kingdom. Clearly, that doesn't make sense. Well, what an amillennialist would say is that the vision describes a heavenly perspective rather than an earthly perspective. A heavenly perspective rather than an earthly perspective. From a heavenly perspective, Christ won the victory over Satan at the cross. Ever since the cross and the resurrection, Christ, uh, Satan has been bound. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. But from an earthly perspective, the world is still messed up. On earth, the period between Christ's first and second comings is this time of tribulation. But on he in heaven, it's a period of victory. That's the way the amillennialist would see this. So when John talks about the saints coming to life and reigning with Christ, what most amillennialists would say is that he is describing what is going on in heaven as followers of Christ die. As they die and leave this earth. Notice how uh, John uses the phrase, the first resurrection. The first resurrection. What's the first resurrection? Well, according to most amillennialists, the first resurrection is the spiritual resurrection that happens to a follower of Jesus when they die. What we, what we might call going to heaven. Okay? Now, the fact that it's called a first resurrection implies that there is a second resurrection. And the second resurrection is the resurrection that is not just the spiritual one in heaven, but a literal physical resurrection, just like Christ literally resurrected into a new body that would not decay or die. A lot of people don't realize that historically, the hope of the Christian faith is not that we're just going off to heaven, but that like Jesus, we will experience a physical resurrection and we will live in a renewed and perfected earth. Um, that that is the final state that we're looking forward to, not this non-physical existence in heaven. So what the amillennialists would say is that this passage assures us that people who die believing in Christ don't just cease to exist. They don't just rot in the ground. Um, they experience this kind of first resurrection in heaven, and in heaven they in some way reign with Christ during this period of time between the first and second comings of Jesus. So, to summarize it, what the amillennialist would say is that one of the purposes of this passage is to reassure Christians, especially Christians whose loved ones were martyred, that the dead who were faithful to Christ are currently experiencing victory. You know, they're not just in the ground, they're not just rotting away, they're not just in some shadowy underworld. They are experiencing victory. Um, they are reigning with Christ in some way right now. So I think that there's a lot of uh, reassurance in the amillennial interpretation of this passage because you know, it, it gives us comfort about those, of, uh, those people that we love 
who follow Jesus to think that this is what they are experiencing right now, this victory, this, this glory. They are in a blessed state. Now, what about the part about Satan not being able to deceive the nations? Seems like he's, be, he's able to do a lot of deception right now, right? Well, what an amillennialist would say is that although Satan does still have the ability to influence, ever since Christ's victory over him at the cross, he has been bound in a way that he was not before. And the proof of that is the fact that the gospel has gone from one nation, the Jews, to nations all over the world. So when it says that Satan isn't able to deceive the nations, it doesn't mean he's not able to deceive at all, but it means that he is not able to stop the gospel from going forth all throughout the world. And that's what we see during this period of time, the church age, is that the gospel has gone out all throughout the world. It continues to go out through, throughout the whole world. And even if Satan wants to stop it, he's not able to. So that's how an amillennialist sees that. And then what about the part about how he's going to be let out uh, at, the, at a certain point, and then he's going to mount this attack? Well, what the amillennialist would say is that there will come a point in history uh, where Satan will be allowed to mount this special attack against the church. But it's not going to work. Um, the way that the vision describes it is fire comes down from heaven and consumes those who gather to oppose uh, Jesus and his people. And it's interesting because just like in the vision that we looked at last week of Christ riding on the horse, the nations assemble for battle, but then there isn't really a battle. It's just kind of like this build-up to a battle, and then it just goes poof, right? In the last vision, Christ just speaks, and no, battle's over. And in this vision, the nations gather for battle, and then fire comes down from heaven, and it's over, right? So the message here is that Jesus wins, right? This is what we talked about last week. Jesus wins. Those who oppose Christ will lose. Uh, even though Satan gathers everyone to oppose Jesus, it ultimately amounts to poof, nothing. doesn't work. Uh, in last week's vision, it described the defeat of the beast and the false prophet, which I identify as the uh, political powers that are opposed uh, to Jesus. And then in this vision, it describes the defeat of the devil, who we know is ultimately the influence behind uh, the evil uh, political powers. And so some say that these two visions are actually really describing the same reality, just from different perspectives. Now, maybe you found that interpretation that I just gave convincing. Maybe you didn't. Whatever the case it's okay. We don't have to divide over this. I think there's a good case for amillennialism. That is where I lean. But I know that good cases can be made for the other two positions, and I respect you, whatever position you hold. One of the reasons that I didn't just skip over this is because despite it being nearly impossible to construct a sermon around, um, I think that looking at passages like this can help to teach us humility. I think that's one of the reasons why God allows passages like this to be in the Bible. I think God wants 
us to learn that it is okay to be uncertain about some things. And, you know, when it comes to interpreting passages like these, these are times where we have to learn to value humility and unity more than certainty. There are things that we should be certain about, yes. But a lot of the time, it's more important to exercise humility and to value unity. Passages like this remind us of that. Certain parts of the Bible are clear. Certain parts are very mysterious. And the important thing we should all agree on is not how the mystery is solved, but the important thing is that we should all be caught up in the mystery together, pursuing God together with humility and grace for each other. And whatever we think about the the millennium, I hope we can all agree Christ is coming back, Jesus wins, Satan will be defeated. We We might not be able to agree exactly on the timeline, but at least we all share the same ultimate hope. And that should be enough. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, you, you prayed before you went to the cross that the church would be united, that your followers would be united uh, in a way similar to the way that you are united with the Father. And that is a profound kind of unity And Lord, I do pray that the church would experience that kind of unity that you prayed for. Lord, I pray that passages like this would not get in the way of our unity. Lord, I pray that rather than insisting that we have solved the mystery, that we would be caught up in the mystery together. Um, Lord, I pray that you would grant us as much understanding as we can have uh, about a passage like this. And I pray that you would help us to uh, value love and unity uh, more, than, more than certainty about this particular issue. Lord Jesus, we repent of any ways that we have uh, caused division when we should have cared more about unity. In Jesus' name, amen.